Well, I'm excited this morning because we're, we're picking back up in the Gospel of Mark. And so I've, I've been looking forward to this. And so if you have your Bibles, I, I, hope, I hope that you have them. If you don't have them, we have some laying around um, that we would love for you to look at. And if you're in the pews up here, I know there's some on the pew backs in front of you. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. So that's where we'll be looking uh, this morning. I want you to think about a time, a time maybe recently, maybe it was a while ago, but I want you to think about a time that your assumptions, whether about, about someone or your, your expectations about something, were, were turned completely on their head. So you had assumptions about, about someone, about something, and, and your assumptions, reality proved your assumptions to be totally and completely wrong. I want you to think about a time that that happened. I, I have three examples, and I'll share all three of them with you. First one happened two weeks ago. I got a call from National Exterminating. Okay, this, is, this is not a commercial, but, but they, the people who bought the house before we had it, had National. They said, we'll, we'll give you a deal to continue the termite service. I said, great. So John came out to, to uh, inspect the, the house. And I don't know what you think about termite guys, Okay, but, but John had a, had a country accent, and he said, I'm, I'm coming by. So I thought, all right, I'll meet John. Well, well, talking to John, turns out, I mean, we, John could talk for hours. Maybe, maybe you know John. He, he's a, a great, great guy. But, but as we talked, what, what I found out about John, and, and I believe this, but John has, has two master's degrees. John's working on a doctoral degree in political science, Okay, so that, that, that throws my assumptions out the window. But then on top of that, John is a competitive bike rider. A, not, not a motorcycle, but a road bike rider. And, and he, in fact, the next day he was flying out to Texas with a team to race in a race. And so needless to say, reality, who John was, the reality of John the termite guy contradicted my stereotype and assumptions. They were turned on their head. Okay, so that's the first example. Second example, a couple weeks ago, there, there was a pretty big boxing match, uh, a pretty big fight between, between two men. One, was, one is one of the greatest boxers of all time, and one is a not-boxer, someone who'd never boxed in his career. And so I assumed, I expected that, that this one boxer, the greatest of all time, would make short work of this guy who'd never boxed before, who was stepping in the ring with him, and, and lots and lots of hoopla surrounded this. And I assumed that th- this wouldn't be much of a fight. Turns out... After the first three rounds, the non-boxer was actually probably winning. So I thought, what, what, what's going on? Surely he can't keep this up. Well, eventually, as we all expected, the, the boxer took control of the fight, and he won in, in the 10th round with a technical knockout. So, so the, the, the ref stopped it because this non-boxer, he couldn't last. He, he had lost his stamina. He couldn't defend himself, and, and so he lost. But it wasn't until the 10th round, which is a lot farther than anyone expected, the fight to go. And so my assumptions... But what was going to happen were, were turned on their head. So reality, what, what happened, contradicted my expectations in, in that instance. And then the third example that I'll give you, it's not something that happened to me, but something that, that I read this past week. And, and this is a biblical example of, of expectations being turned on their head. And so I think this is probably the best of the three. Nothing against termites and boxing. But, but here's, here's a third example. The book of Revelation 
So in chapter 5, now, now I'm not going to get into details about Revelation, but basically John, the Apostle John, is on an island, and, and he's taken up by the Spirit, and he has this vision, and so this angel is showing him all these things. And, and, and in chapter 5, what happens is, is he sees this scroll, which this scroll is just representative of, of, of the timeline of history, and it's sealed with seven seals. And, and so John, in this vision, sees that, and, and everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Let, let's open the seal and or let's open the scroll and see what, what the timeline of history looks like. And, and John looks around, and, and there's no one to open the scroll. No one has authority, no one has power, no one has the ability to open the scroll. And so John is weeping. Okay, I don't know if these are real tears or these are vision tears, but, but John is weeping. And in Revelation 5, verse 5, he hears this voice that says, Weep no more, John. Behold, now listen, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John is weeping because no one has power and authority to, to open this. And John has said, John is told, stop crying because there's actually someone who's able to open the scroll. And that someone is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The, the, the root of David, the one who has conquered. And so I assume, if I'm in John's place, this one that I'm imagining, this one who has power and authority... Uh, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. My expectations are, are someone who's powerful, like a lion, a, a lion's head and a horse's body, or something, an image of power and authority. That's probably what John's expectations, his assumptions are. But listen to the very next verse, Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, so that, that's just the scene, so John's describing, between these things, here's what John saw. He turns around, remembers what he's expecting. I turned around and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so in John's mind, the, the lion of Judah, the one with power and authority, is actually a lamb that appears as though it's been slain. I think it's fair to say that, that, that reality contradicted his expectations. A, a slain lamb with power and authority and, and, and the ability to open the scrolls and unlock the timeline of history. And this third example, this lion and lamb, this example gets to the heart of the gospel. It gets to the heart. It's one of the great paradoxes of, of the Christian message itself, that, that power and authority is actually seen through weakness. And so we see in the life of Jesus, it's as if though God flexes his muscles by suffering and dying. Do you see the paradox? The Messiah came to suffer death. The Messiah came to suffer death, even death on a cross. And, and this reality that, that the Messiah must suffer, that, that God's great plan of salvation included a Messiah that would conquer through suffering, is a reality that Jesus is going to begin pressing upon his disciples in our passage. Okay, so that's the problem. They, they don't understand a Messiah that's going to suffer. So Jesus has to patiently press this into them. And so if, you're, if you have your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. So Mark 8, 31. You can follow along. I'll begin reading. And he began to teach them, that's Jesus talking to his disciples, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, 
he rebuked Peter. As Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so we pick up right, right, we're jumping right into verse 31. And, and so let me, let me just give you a little bit of, of where we've come. Okay, so here's an eight chapter summary in a couple of sentences. Okay, so, so you're there at, at Mark 8, 31. I want you to, to take your eyes up. Look at verses 27 through 30, right there, right above where we just read. Mark 8, 27 through 30. That's the last passage we covered several months ago. And in those, those verses, we reached a turning point. If you weren't here, you remember it was a turning point because there, in those verses, Jesus asks his disciples about his identity. Okay, so, so the whole first half of Mark's gospel is about who is, this, who is this guy? Who is this man? What's his identity? And there in chapter 8, in those verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks Peter, he says, who do people say that I am? Well, what's the word on the street, guys? What, what are people saying about me? And, and they give some, some popular opinions of the day, all which are, are incorrect. And then Jesus points, pinpoints Peter and says, well, Peter, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And if you remember there, P- Peter makes the good confession. He gets it right. And, and there in Mark's gospel, for, for the first time, a human character rightly identifies Jesus. Up until that point, it was only the demons and, and, the, uh, and, and the Lord him, and God himself, the Father himself, and the Spirit who are identifying Jesus. No human had gotten it right. They'd all been wrong. But here, Peter gets it right. A human character, you are the Christ. And so it's a turning point. With that confession, we reached a high point in the Gospel of Mark. They finally got it. But look there in verse 30. Right at the end of that, Peter just makes this great confession, verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And if you remember, we talked, what, what sense does that make? He, he got it right. Why would Jesus say, now don't tell anyone about this? Strange at the time, but this morning as, as we continue Mark's gospel, we will see plainly why Jesus didn't want them telling anyone that he was a Christ. We'll see that although they knew who he was, they could correctly identify, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. They got that right. We'll see this morning, they still didn't know what he had come to do. Right? They had the identity right, but, but what he was here to do, they, they had no clue. They still needed to have their assumptions, their expectations about the Christ realigned with reality. And so our passage, let, let's look at it. I broke it down into, into two sections. The first section, verses 31 through 33. Okay, the first section, the Son of Man must suffer. And then the second section, verses 34 through 38, the Son of Man must be followed. The Son of Man must suffer, and then the Son of Man must be followed. And so these, these are two, two main points. The Son of Man must suffer, and the Son of Man must follow. Hence, the title is Following the Suffering Son of Man. Okay, so that, that's where we get our title. So let, let's look first, first section, verses 31 through 30. So the passage is a transition, but look there at verse 31. Jesus began to teach his disciples that, that specific things must happen. Do you see the language there in verse 31? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. I, I want to emphasize that word. He, there, there's a must. Maybe your translation says, he began to teach them that it was necessary 
for the Son of Man to suffer. So, so, so the idea is there, there's a divine necessity. This must happen, Jesus is telling his disciples. The Son of Man must do these things. And it marks a shift because up, in, up until this point, Mark's gospel, Jesus has not explicitly predicted what's coming. Okay, but here he is plainly telling them what's going to happen. Do you see there in verse 32? In verse 32, he said this plainly. And so there, 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 there's no question, there's no, there's no mis- mystery surrounding, there's nothing veiled. It's as plain as day. Jesus is telling him, he must suffer. And actually, this is going to become a theme where Jesus is plainly predicting his coming death. And, and we'll see that, that the disciples still don't get it. But, but for now, here in verse 3, when he predicts what's coming, and notice what must happen there in verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things, he must be rejected he must be killed, and he must rise again. Do you see there in verse 31? These are things that must happen. So Jesus is telling them what, what's going to happen. And, and the, the issue here is that by saying that this is what must happen to the Messiah, Jesus is trampling all the assumptions and the expectations about the Christ. They didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah. I mean, remember, they've just confessed, you're the Christ, the promised one, the son of David. And now Jesus says, yeah, you're right. But it's not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. Things aren't going to, going to play out the way that you're expecting. I, the Christ, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. And so that doesn't sit well with Peter. And so in a matter of moments, remember, Peter's the one. So Peter goes from being the good confessor to acting like he's the Lord's professor. Right? He, he makes the good confession in one moment. Then the next moment, he's rebuking Jesus, saying, no, no, that's not right. How quickly Peter turns. And so verse 32, Peter takes them aside. And he began to rebuke them. Now just think. He just confessed, you're the Christ. And a moment later, he's saying, no, 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 you're wrong. Right? Just, just let that settle in your mind what's happening. We, we got to love Peter. But so Peter goes, takes them aside, begins to rebuke them. And, and, and because, because there are no categories for the suffering Messiah. So in ancient Judaism, one commentator says there's no concept that the Messiah would suffer the horrible fate that Jesus describes. And so Peter hears what's going to happen to the Messiah. He says, no, 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 you got the Messiah gig wrong. That's not how it plays out. Now, we have to be careful not to be too hard on Peter. I mean, let's think about what Peter's just heard. Peter has heard the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was sent to save God's people, right, has just said that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And so in Peter's mind, or at least if I'm Peter, for Jesus to endure these things, for him to suffer, for him to be rejected, him to die, right, that means he's lost. Right? That, that means you've been conquered. If, if, you're, if you suffer, if you're rejected, and if you're killed, you've been defeated. And so Peter hears that. He says, whoa, the Messiah can't lose. And so he wants to set Jesus straight. He's confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So Peter's just said, you're God's sent one, which means that God's with you. And so Peter can't understand how, if God is with this guy, how is he going to go through these things? Right? How can he be killed and suffer and be rejected if, if God's with him? And so Peter hears Jesus saying that his mission is going to fail. And so Peter takes it upon himself to, to give a, a bit of a pep talk to Christ, to, to give a motivational speech. This isn't you, Jesus. Snap out of it. You're not going to be defeated. You're not going to suffer. Wake up. You're the Messiah. And we, as Mark, Mark's readers, we realize that, that Peter has no idea. He has no idea. This is the irony of Peter's rebuke. Peter thinks that, that Jesus, as the chosen one, is in contradiction 
to the prediction that Jesus just made, not realizing that God's choice of Jesus means that he must undergo the fate that he just described. And so Peter rebukes Jesus in, in the name of God, thinking he, he's speaking for God, but he's found actually to be taking a position that is anti-God. Right? That's the irony. Peter thinks he's helping, but he's not. And so, so Jesus can't, can't leave the rebuke unaddressed. So verse 33, but turning, so this is Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So that's the same word. He rebuked Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. And so it's interesting, when, when I read there in, in verse 33, do you see, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said. So that, that's a different, why, why, does he, why does him seeing the disciples lead him to rebuke Peter? Do you see that, turning and seeing them? I, I wonder, well, why does he do that? Remember, Peter's taken him aside and, 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 and privately rebuked him. And so it appears that, that Jesus hears this rebuke from Peter and looking and seeing the disciples, either he sees hey, they've all seen, and so I have to address this publicly, or I think probably more likely he sees, and they're all like, yeah, that's right, Peter. They're all in agreement with, yeah, that, that's exactly right. This can't happen. And so Jesus has to address this faulty thinking. He has to do it publicly. And so he sees the disciples and sees that, that this is their mindset, so he rebukes them with no small rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man is, is the rebuke that Jesus offers. Now, I don't think this means that, that Peter has temporarily been possessed by Satan himself. Okay, I don't think that's necessary for us to, to think. Rather, I think it's simply Jesus shocking Peter and the disciples by showing them how anti-God Peter's attitude is. I mean, he's shocking them. Get behind me, Satan. Your, your mindset is in, more in line with Satan than with God. In, in his rebuke of Jesus, Peter is showing himself to be more in line with Satan than with God. He doesn't say, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of Satan. So in his rebuke, he says, okay, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but what is he setting his mind on things of? It would seem like he'd say, you're setting your mind on the things of Satan. Stop. But rather, he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so why, why does he say this, this satanic thinking is in line with the, the mind of man? What does it mean to set one's mind on the things of man? Most basically... Jesus is pointing out that, that Peter is failing to take into account God's perspective. He, he's judging the circumstances by the here and now. This is how it appears. And, and so, so that is how I'm judging things. He doesn't have God's perspective. The reality, the, the reality behind the appearance is that the plan that involves Jesus' suffering is the all-wise plan of the all-wise God. And Peter doesn't know that. He's thinking in terms of the here and now. And this plan results in the salvation of all of God's people, includes the Messiah's suffering. And so think about Peter post-resurrection. Would he make this statement? You're not going to suffer. No, Peter is clinging to the suffering of the Christ. Right? He, he's pleading for the blood in 1 Peter. And so for Peter to, to attempt to prevent the suffering of the Messiah is to attempt to prevent God's unfolding divine plan. It's to be on the wrong side of things, isn't it? It's to join forces with Satan. And so Peter makes clear, or Jesus makes clear to Peter and the other disciples, the Son of Man must suffer. So this is our first point. The Son of Man must suffer. Now, let me make one point, at, one quick point of application here. And that's simply this. If you're here and you're a Christian, application quickly from here is, is let us labor to set our minds on the things of God. 
Right, so that's Peter, right? So Peter is clearly here as an example. He's making a mistake that we should avoid, right? We don't want to be on the receiving end of the rebuke of Jesus here. And so the implication is we ought to set our minds on the things of God as opposed to the things of man, which is what Peter was doing. And so my two simple questions are, first, how do we do that? How, how do we set our minds on the things of God? Well, think about this case. The disciples had no idea how to set their minds on the things of God other than submitting to the plans and predictions of Jesus. And that's, that's, how, they, that's how they could set their minds on the things of God, by submit. They didn't know what it meant that he was going to suffer. They didn't know why he had to suffer, but they could submit to the revelation that Jesus had made, that, that this is how it's going to be. They could choose to submit and by doing so, they would be setting their minds on the things of God. And so simply, they would have followed Jesus to Jerusalem. Setting their minds on the things of God would have led them to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, knowing that, that Jesus was more aware of how things were and, and where things were going. And so, so for us, how do we know the things of God? How do we set our minds on the things of God? Simply, is it not by studying and being aware of the fact that God has revealed himself in, in Christ and in the Scriptures? The mind of God has been revealed to us in his scriptures. We have at our fingertips every day, at any point of the day, access to the very things of God. Right? That, that's a reality that the world that you live in, if, if you don't have a Bible, talk to me and I'll give you one. Right? We have access to the things of God and, and we must labor to set our minds on the things of God. That begins with, with knowing, with knowing the things of God. You've got to know them before you can set your mind on them. And so, so the second question, so that's how we do it, by, by, by knowing the scriptures and how God has revealed himself. But second, consider the alternative. And in this passage, there's two, there's two options. You can set your mind on the things of God or on the things of man. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. It's no kind of like, I'll set my mind on the things of God sometimes and then things of man sometimes. No, it's either all or nothing. You either set your mind on the things of God or you set your mind on the things that are contrary to the mind of God, which is the things of man. And so my application, my encouragement is we must labor to set our minds on the things of God. If we're not intentionally doing so, we will quickly find ourselves setting our minds on the things of man, and in Peter's case, opposing God. And so let us labor to set our minds on the things of God. Let's look back, verse, moving on to verse 34 and 38, the second section. So Jesus says, Son of man must suffer. Yeah, that's what he's telling the disciples. Then second, he makes a second point, namely that the Son of Man must be followed. So look at verses 34 through 38. So there's a well-known passage. Multiple gospel accounts record, record sayings like this. And so, so let's think about this. So, so the key, I think, to interpreting these, so I'm, I'm talking about verses 34 through 38, the key to interpreting these is to recognize and understand the, the paradox or the irony of these statements. Jesus' teaching in these verses centers around these, these two separate ends of the spectrum. Okay, so on one end is death and loss, and on the other is, is life and gain. And, and so, so these are two ends of the spectrum. And the irony is that, or the funny thing is that, to get to where you want to go, okay, so I assume life and gain, to get to where you want to go, you've got to enter into the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you see that? That's the whole, that's the basis of this, that to get to where, want, to where you want to go, you've got to do the opposite. That's a paradox, and so to live, you've got to die. That, that's, that's the summary of this. You've got to start, where you start is opposite of where you end. And so Jesus here teaches that following him, that being his disciples, requires loss and death. So let's look at the passage. So there, verse, look at verse 34. Calling the crowds to him with his disciples. 
So it's not just him and the disciples and others. There's a crowd with him. Notice what he says in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, verse 34, that's a command. You see that? This is an imperative. Jesus is giving a command. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, command one. Take up your cross, command two. Follow me, command three. Okay? Those are three things you must do. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, do those things. But then notice throughout the rest of the passage, all of the, all the fours, all, all the, the gars. Okay, that, that's the Greek word for four, the preposition. So Jesus makes the command in verse 34. And then look with me. Verse, the first word in verse 35, at least in this translation, four. The first word at the beginning of verse 36, four. The first word at the beginning of verse 37, four. The first word at the beginning of verse 38, four. And so Jesus makes this command in verse 34, and then he gives all of these reasons that you should obey the command. So Jesus doesn't say, do this, have a nice day. He says, do this because this, and because this, and because this, and because this. So, so these, are, these are supports for why we ought to obey the command, the initial command, the imperative in verse 34. Do you, do you see how that, that, that functions? Now, that's, how we, that's how we use language. We, we tell, tell our kids to do something. If you don't, you're not going to get dessert. Or if you don't, you're not going to watch TV. Right? These are all grounds for why you should obey. And sometimes they're not the best grounds, but as parents, sometimes we do what we can, don't we? But so Jesus, much better grounds than a human parent, he makes a command and he gives the reasons. And so, motivations to obey the commands support the command. And so on the surface, it may seem, well, Jesus, how harsh for you to call your followers to, to deny self and to bear a cross. But when we look in light of what's at stake, why would anyone choose anything else? And so, so let's look quickly at, at the command. <clears throat> so see the command and then the four reasons. So first command, if you want to come after me or follow me, that's, that's the same word, follow me. If you want to follow me, he must... Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay? So, so we'll quickly, we'll, we'll run through those. <clears throat> Following Jesus requires self-denial. I mean, think about, think about Peter has just heard Jesus going to the cross or he's going to die. And Peter says, no way. I don't, I, that's not going to happen. And so Peter doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Imagine what following Jesus for Peter and Peter himself suffering would, would what that would incite in Peter. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Imagine when the suffering turns on him. Okay? And so there's a part of every Christian that requires denial of self because there's a part of every one of us that detests suffering, detests affliction, adversity. And so therefore to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, himself or herself. We all have to do this. Second, take up your cross. Okay? So not only is suffering involved, there's also shame and, and public disgrace. Think about taking up one's cross. We often hear it today, and it's, it's a spiritualized thing. Well, yeah, we, i got to bear my cross today. My kid is a pain to raise. I'm bearing my cross. Right? Well, well that's not the intended meaning here. It can't be spiritualized. When Jesus says this, there's no way for the disciples to think anything other than crucifixion physically. You must take up your cross. Right? You must follow me even to death. And in fact, some of these disciples would do the exact thing. Following Jesus means being willing to be crucified. And all that comes with it, mocking and scorn and ridicule, being made fun of. Taking up one's cross is no small task. So, but third, if you want to follow me, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, follow me. Right? Do you see the redundancy? If anyone want to follow me, you must follow me. That's, that's the point. 
If you want to follow Christ, you actually have to follow Christ. You can't, you can't follow him in, in talk only. Your talk is cheap. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to follow Jesus. You've got to, you've got to move. You've got to, you've got to go. I mean, think about the context. Where's, where's Jesus going? What's he just told the disciples? He's going he's gonna to die. That's where he's going. He's saying, follow me. Right? They can't stand where they are and follow him to Jerusalem. They've, they've got to follow him. So, so is Jesus crazy? Some of you may say yes. Has he lost his mind? It, 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 may, it may seem like that at least until you consider the motivators, the reasons that he gives. So, so the four reasons. First reason, verse 35, your life is at stake. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So your, your life is at stake. I mean, Jesus just said, follow me as I go to die, to suffer, to be rejected. One might say, if I follow you, I die, so I'm going to save my life and not follow you. Okay, thanks. I'm, I'm actually going to save my life by not following you. I've got better things to do. And so, and so one way of thinking is I'm going to save my life by, by forsaking you, Jesus, and not following you. And, and to you, Jesus would say, I know that you think you're saving your life, but, but the reality is refusing to follow me is actually the best way to lose your life. Your life is at stake. If you don't follow me, you lose it. I mean, that, that's what he says, verse 35. If you want to save it, you're going to lose it. But the opposite is also true. If you, if you lose your life, if you follow Jesus, counting everything else loss, you actually save your life. And so it, it, it's, your life is at stake, reason one. Reason two, your soul is at stake. Look at verse 36. Rhetorical question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is clear. I mean, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to gain everything they can, and then lose his soul? The answer implied is nothing. You can gain the whole world, and it's, it's worthless because it doesn't tip the scale in comparison to the destiny of your soul and your eternal existence. I mean, can I just tell you, the world is fading away. It's all fleeting. Everything in the world, everything that you can see and taste and touch and experience, it's all fading. And I, right now, it seems technicolor, doesn't it? It's bright and vivid, but... but Friend, let me, let me tell you, it will soon be dull, faded, black, and white. It's all fading away. And your soul is at stake. I mean, think about the honesty of Jesus. He's not hiding anything. He's saying to follow him, to deny yourself, and to take up your cross means to lose the world. Right? That is at stake. You have to lose the world if you want to follow Jesus. It means letting go of this world and all that it has to offer. It means refusing to believe that this world has something to offer me. At the end of the day, it has nothing for you. And so following him is, is loss. But your soul is at stake. Reason number three, your soul can't be bought. So this is the third reason. Your soul can't be bought. Look at verse 37, another rhetorical question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And again, I'd say the answer is clear, Nothing. Your soul can't be bought. You, you can't give anything. And so I think the logic here is Jesus just said, your, your soul's at stake. So follow me. Well, someone might say, well, okay, I'll gain this whole world, and then later, then I'll, I'll give it all back and get my soul. And I'll just live for here and now for a little bit, until I gain a little bit, have a little bit of pleasure. Then I'll give it all back, and I'll forsake the world. Jesus says, no. 
God does not make that transaction. You can't give anything in return for your soul. You can't have it both ways. Either you give up your life for Christ or you leave your soul and give up your life for Christ and leave your soul in good hands or you forsake Christ and lose your soul. Never to get it back. Your soul can't be bought. And reason number four, verse 38. Reason number four, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, of that one, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Reason number four, eternal judgment is at stake. I mean, think about it. Why would someone refuse to follow Jesus? Why would anyone in the crowd or why would any of his disciples refuse to follow him? They don't want to suffer. They don't want to be shamed. They don't want to pay the price. And so they they turn away. I'm not going to follow him. I'm refusing to follow him. And by refusing to follow him, they are saying, I don't want to be associated with this man and the cost of following him. That's what they're saying. By refusing to follow this man, I don't want to be associated with this man. Or to put it another way, I'm ashamed of him and the call that he played. I don't want to be identified with Jesus. I'm ashamed of him. I mean, think about a Messiah who leads the way by suffering, a Messiah who leads the way by going to a cross. No, thank you. That's a weak Messiah. That's an embarrassing Messiah. No, thank you. I'll keep my life. And and to that person, Jesus says, you have no right to think that in the last day when the Son of Man comes to judge that you'll be looked upon kindly. You have no reason to think that. If If you are ashamed of him now, you have no reason to think that he will welcome you then. That To that person, Jesus says, I'm ashamed of you. Get away from me. You have no part with me. And so Jesus concludes his argument. He says, follow me because... Your life's at stake, your soul's at stake, your soul can't be bought, and your eternal destiny is at stake. Or, to put it in a positive form, he says, follow me because following me saves your life, following me saves your soul, following me secures the salvation of your soul, or secures your soul, and following me secures your affirmation at the final judgment, or secures your eternal destiny. That's what's at stake. And so so let me close with two applications I hope this will, will clarify. So there's two types of people here this morning. No matter who you are, you fall in one of two categories. Either you're a non-Christian or you're a Christian. And if, if you're either category, I'm glad you're here. But first, let me, let me talk to the non-Christian. If you're here, you're not a Christian. The application for you, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's application. That's what you should hear me saying to you. Follow Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You should hear me say that that there's safety, there's security, there's there's comfort, there's assurance on the road with Christ. It's there. Following Christ is the call upon your life this morning. If you're here not a Christian, the call on your life is to follow Jesus. And so through these verses, through, through Mark's gospel, if you're here and you're not a Christian, God is calling you. Whoever you are, he's calling you to follow him. He's also telling you there's a cost. There's a cost. The, the, the paradox of salvation is that it costs you nothing. Yet, yet it costs you everything. You hear that it costs you nothing, yet it costs you everything. And so if you're here not a Christian, two things. One, salvation costs you nothing. That's the best news you're going to hear all morning. All week, all month, all year, all life. Salvation costs you nothing. This Jesus goes to the cross 
He's crucified. He dies a substitutionary death, which simply means he dies in the place of sinners, crucified in your place, in order that anyone, anyone, anyone who would put their trust in him, who would turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ would be saved apart from anything that you have to do. It's free. It costs you nothing. It costs Jesus his own life, but it costs you nothing. His rewards to you your punishment to him, the great exchange. And so I stand here this morning making an appeal to you in the name of Christ, repent and be saved. Find life in Christ. It's free. Why would you refuse such an offer? But the second thing you need to hear me say is that following Christ, that that doing this is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. There's no easy button when it comes to following Christ. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Right? It's a package deal. You can't just follow him and say, I'm not going to deny, deny myself or take up a cross, but I'll follow him. No, it's, it's a package deal. This means that when you follow Christ, you lose all rights to your life. All rights. You, you check your dreams, your aspirations, your desires, everything. Your plans, you check them at the door when you follow Christ. This, this doesn't mean you can't or won't end up getting them back of, or, or pursuing them, but it does mean that when you follow Christ, you submit everything to him. Arms wide open, it's all yours. It costs you everything. When you follow Christ, you cut loose the strings of attachment between you and the world. The fame, the respect, the admiration, the pleasures, all the things that are of this world, you cut loose. And so it costs you your very self. But, but here's the good news. What you envision, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what you envision as being the good life, it's far less than good. Can I just tell you that? It's far less then good. It's only in following Christ that you find the good life. It's only in dying to self that you find life. In other words, by dying and only by dying are you able to live. And so, so my call to you is come find life in Christ this morning. Follow him. But then secondly, second application, if you hear you're a Christian, I know, I know we're at 12, right? I've been told many times, don't worry about time, right? So I'm worrying about time right now, telling you it's 12. Second application, if you're here, okay, if you're here and you're a Christian, and I assume that that's probably most of you, if you're here and, not, and you are a Christian, my application to you would be deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The paradox of salvation is that it costs us nothing, yet it costs us everything. Following Christ means counting ourselves dead to sin, dead to our old selves, dead to flesh, and it's not just a one-time thing. Right? It's a continual practice. It's something that we must labor to do always. I mean, what Christian here can't identify with the challenges of following Jesus in this adulterous and sinful generation? Right? There's a cost. We, we have to deny ourselves. We're constantly having to reaffirm our allegiance to Christ. And I'm not even talking about the, the state of our current culture. Yeah, that makes things challenging. And, and yeah, there's stains we have to make. But I'm talking about internally. Right? We're talking about ourselves. We have, to, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. I have to deny my old self who gives me much more of a problem than anything outside of me. I have to de- deny myself. There's a cost. But Christian, on the other side of that cost, there's eternal reward. Right? That, that's the logic of the passage. Yes, there's cost. Yes, there's loss. Yes, there's death here and now. But there's a day coming when all all of this loss, every loss will be reversed. And the cost that we pay now will pale in comparison with the glory and the reward then. A well-known missionary, Jim Elliott, 
Maybe you've heard of his name. He was murdered in Ecuador, in an island in Ecuador, who was murdered alongside with Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian by, by the Aka Indians, this tribe in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott, he, he, the most famous quote, I'm sure you've heard it, but Jim Elliott, who gave his life, who was martyred for his faith, they were taking the gospel to these Aka Indians, and they murdered him and his, and his four missionary friends. And he said... He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so Jim Elliott gave up his life. He couldn't keep it. It was just his life. He gave it up for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and Jim Elliott gained life. Jim Elliott and those four missionaries are more alive now than they ever were on this earth. There's nothing that you're going to give up here and now, even your life, that then and there will seem significant. Nothing. So, let's be losers. Let's be losers. Christian, take heart in your journey. Don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call on our lives, and we thank you that that Jesus has paid it all for us, that we are able to follow him because he has led the way. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. We're going to transition to, as I mentioned earlier, to transition to the Lord's Supper. And, and what I want you to think about is, remember in verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer. Right? It was the Son of Man who was going to suffer. Well, did you notice at the very end of our passage, who was coming back to judge in the glory of the fathers, in the glory of his Father and the holy angels? It was the Son of Man. Right, so Jesus, the Son of Man, came and suffered, but he's coming again. And so as we transition, the cross wasn't the end for Jesus. He was raised. And he was raised from the dead. The cross was the pathway to the resurrection. And so Jesus is alive. And so what we're doing here is we're proclaiming his death, proclaiming that he's coming again. He's alive here and now. Because of his death on the cross in our place, Jesus is the only hope that we have. And so what I want to do is this, this meal, this meal is for Christians, okay? So if you're here and you're a Christian, this meal is for you, okay? The, the, we, we take bread and we take juice, okay? It represents the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. It's for Christians. It's for those who are united to Jesus, okay? So if you're a Christian, you're welcome to partake of this. It's also a time for Christians to examine ourselves. And so if there's sin in your life that, that you're holding on to that no one else knows about, Okay, now is the time for you to ask yourself, why am I holding on to this? Why am I living in sin? And, and now is the time to confess to God. Because Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed. There's free forgiveness to those who confess. And so now is the time for you to examine yourself. Is there any sin? Maybe there's not. Praise God. Okay, but as a Christian, you should use this time to examine yourself. And lastly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. Okay, so what you need to do is let these plates pass. It is not for non-Christians, for those who are united to Jesus. Paul says if you take this in an unworthy manner, some that did so died. Okay, this is a serious thing, and it's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, just let it go. No one's going to think different of you. No one's going to think you're silly. No one's going to laugh at you, right? This is not for you. If if you want to follow Jesus, right, I'd love to talk with you afterwards about how to do that, but right now... This is a meal for Christians, for those who are united to Jesus by faith. And so if you're not a Christian, please let, let let the plate and the bread pass.